Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Heming Brainiac List podcast. Book 9, Chapter 11. I peeked ahead, and by the way, Chapter 12 has some Rostov action. I don't even know which Rostov, I just saw the name Rostov. But that is enough to get me excited. In this chapter, there are a lot of discussions between different characters from different parties, as described uh, in Chapter 3.1.9. What do you think belongs to which... Sorry, who do you think belongs to which party and who's presenting the best points in this chapter? Of all the people in the study, Andre has the most sympathy for Fuel, even though he isn't of the same mind at all concerning the best approach to win the war. Does this impact your opinion of Andre negatively or positively, or didn't it change it at all? I liked um, uh, the last bit of the chapter. I'll reread the last line. At the review the next day, the Emperor asked Prince Andre where he would like to serve, and Prince Andre lost his standing in the court circles forever by not asking to remain attached to the Sovereign's person, but for permission to serve in the army. He's uh, gone ahead and been given the choice by the Emperor. Essentially, the Emperor's saying, where do you want to be in the upcoming war? On a silver platter, giving Andre the opportunity to say... You know, I'll be attached to you. You know, what would you like me to do? And essentially achieve the highest status in the army. But he's, I don't know, a man of integrity, like I said at the end of yesterday's episode. And he's decided he wants to serve in the army. He's seen the charades. He's seen the nonsense that goes on in the Emperor's war room and he wants no part of it. He wants to go out there and actually do something. So good on him. Rahul the Invader said, I so loved this chapter. It perfectly demonstrates the chaotic environment of a war and military strategy. One can almost empathise with Alexander as he has to navigate across all these options and find a middle ground. I loved Andre's conclusion that one should be devoid of emotions, love and beauty to be a good leader in the battleground. All they need to focus on is the job. Everything else is background noise. Napoleon perfectly demonstrates these qualities. Alexander, on the other hand, is quiet and intellectual and invites multiple perspectives only for his own downfall. Yeah, it's interesting too that all the boots on the ground would just have this kind of supreme confidence that the leaders of the military know exactly what they are doing. You know, it's a well-oiled machine in there. And the directives that are coming out from, you know, from the top are the best directives possible. But then when you get this look behind the curtain and you see, you know what, this is just a bunch of men arguing who don't know what the heck to do. And even they don't know if they've chosen the best course of action. (sighs) It's really interesting to see those different perspectives, I think, now. Now, 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 I'm going to read you the next chapter. Straight in. Just going to go for it. Chapter 12. goes like this. Before the beginning of the campaign, Rostov had received a letter from his parents in which they told him briefly of Natasha's illness and of the breaking off of her engagement to Prince Andre, which they explained by Natasha's having rejected him, and again asked Nicholas to retire from the army and return home. On receiving this letter, Nicholas did not even make an attempt to get leave of absence or to retire from the army, but wrote to his parents that he was sorry Natasha was ill and her engagement broken off, and that he would do all he could to meet their wishes. To Sonia he wrote separately, Adored friend of my soul, he wrote, nothing but honour 
could keep me from returning to the country, but now, at the commencement of the campaign, I should feel dishonoured, not only in my comrades' eyes, but in my own, if I preferred my own happiness to my love and duty to my fatherland. But this shall be our last separation. Believe me, directly the war is over. If I am still alive and still loved you, I will throw off everything and fly to you, to press you forever to my ardent breast. It was, in fact, only the commencement of the campaign that prevented Rostov from returning home, as he had promised and marrying Sonia. The autumn of Inotrednoe, with the hunting, and the winter with the Christmas holidays and Sonia's love, had opened out to him a vista of tranquil rural joys and peace such as he had never known before, and which now allured him. A splendid wife, children, a good pack of hounds, a dozen leashes of smart borzois, agriculture, neighbours, service by election, thought he. But now the campaign was beginning and he had to remain with his regiment. And since it had to be so, Nicholas Rostov, as was natural to him, felt contented with the life he led in the regiment and was able to find pleasure in that life. On his return from his furlough, Nicholas, having been joyful, joyfully welcomed by his comrades, was sent to obtain remounts, remounts and brought back from the Ukraine excellent horses, which pleased him and earned him commendation from his commanders. During his absence, he had been promoted captain, and when the regiment was put on war footing with an increase in numbers, he was again allotted his old squadron. The campaign began, the regiment was moved into Poland on double pay, new officers arrived, new men and horses, and above all, everybody was infected with the merrily excited mood that goes with the commencement of war, and Rostov, conscious of his advantageous position in the regiment, devoted himself entirely to the pleasures and interests of military service, though he knew that sooner or later he would have to relinquish them. The troops tri- the troops retired from Vilna for various complicated reasons of state, political and strategic. Each step of the retreat was accompanied by a complicated interplay of interests, arguments and passions at headquarters. For the Pavlograd Hussars, however, the whole of this retreat during the finest period of summer and with sufficient supplies was a very simple and agreeable business. It was only at headquarters that there was depression, uneasiness and intriguing. In the body of the army, they did not ask themselves where they were going or why. If they regretted having to retreat, it was only because they had to leave billets that they had grown accustomed to, or some pretty young Polish lady. If the thought that things looked bad chanced to enter anyone's head, he tried to be as cheerful as befits a good soldier, and not to think of the general trend of affairs, but only of the task nearest to hand. First, they camped gaily before Vilna, making acquaintance with the Polish landowners, preparing for reviews and being reviewed by the emperor and of high and other high commanders. Then came an order to retreat to Svensiani and destroy any provisions they could not carry away with them. Svensiani was remembered by the Hussars only as the Drunken Camp, a name the whole army gave to their encampment there, and because many complaints were made against the troops, who, taking advantage of the order, to collect provisions, took also horses, carriages and carpets from the Polish proprietors. Rostov remembered Svenstiani because on the first day of the arrival at the small t- town, he changed his sergeant major and was unable to manage all the drunken men of his squadron who, unknown to him, had appropriated five barrels of old beer. From Svenstiani they retired further and farther from Drissa and thence again beyond Drissa drawing near to the frontier of Russia proper. 
On the 13th of July, the Pavlograds took part in a serious action for the first time. On the 12th of July, on the eve of that action, there was a heavy storm of rain and hail. In general, the summer of 1812 was remarkable for its storms. The two Pavlograd squadrons were bivouacking on a field of rye, which was already in ear, but had been completely trodden down by cattle and horses. The rain was descending in torrents, and Rostov, with a young officer named Ilyin, his protégé, was sitting in a hastily constructed shelter. An officer of their regiment, with long moustaches extending onto his cheeks, who, after riding to the staff, had been overtaken by the rain, entered Rostov's shelter. I have come from the staff, Count. Have you heard of Ravsky's exploit? And the officer gave them details of the Sultanov battle, which he had heard at the staff. <clears throat> Rostov, smoking his pipe and turning his head about as the water trickled down his neck, listened inattentively with an occasional glance at Ilyin, who was pressing close to him. This officer, a lad of sixteen who had recently joined the regiment, was now in the same relation to Nicholas that Nicholas had been to Denisov seven years before. Ilyin tried to imitate Rostov in everything and adored him as a girl might have done. Zudhinsky, the officer with the long moustache, spoke grandiloquently of the Sultanov Dam being a Russian thermopylae and of how a deed worthy of antiquity had been performed by General Ravsky. He recounted how Ravsky had led his two sons onto the dam under terrific fire, and had charged with them beside him. Rostov heard the story, and not only said nothing to encourage Zvodhinsky's enthusiasm, but on the contrary, looked like a man ashamed of what he was hearing, though with no intention of contradicting it. Since the campaigns of Austerlitz and of 1807, Rostov knew by experience that men always lie when describing military exploits, as he himself had done when recounting them. Besides that, he had experience enough to know that nothing happens in war at all, as we can imagine or relate it. And so he did not like Zadinsky's tale, nor did he like Zadinsky himself, who, with his moustaches extending over his cheeks, bent low over the face of his hearer, as was his habit and crowded Rostov in the narrow shanty. Rostov looked at him in silence. In the first place, place, there must have been such a confusion and crowding on the dam that was being attacked that if Rezivsky did lead his sons there, it could have had no effect except perhaps on some dozen men nearest to him. <clears throat> to him, thought he. The rest could not have seen how or with whom Rezivsky came onto the dam and even those who did see it would not have been much stimulated by it, for what had they to do with Ravsky's tender paternal feelings when their own skins were in danger? And besides, the fate of the fatherland did not depend on whether they took the Sultan of Dam or not, as we are told was the case at Thurman Play. So why should he have made such a sacrifice, and why expose his own children in the battle? I would not have taken my brother Petya there, or even Ilyin, who is a stranger to me, but a nice lad, but would have tried to put them somewhere under cover. Nicholas continued to think, as he listened to Zadhinsky, but he did not express his thoughts, for in such matters, too, he had gained experience. He knew that this tale redounded 
to the glory of our arms, and so he had to pretend not to doubt it, and he acted accordingly. I can't stand this any more, said Ilyin, noticing that Rostov did not relish Zerdinsky's conversation. My stockings and shirt, and the water is running on my seat. I'll go and look for shelter. The rain seems less heavy. Ilyin went out, and Zardinsky rode away. Five minutes later, Ilyin, splashing through the mud, came running back to the shanty. Hurrah, Rostov, come quick, I've found it. About two hundred yards away, there's a tavern where owls have already gathered. We can at least get dry there, and Mary Hedrikovna's there. Mary Hedrikovna was the wife of the regimental doctor, a pretty young German woman who had married. he had married in Poland. The doctor, whether from lack of means or because he did not like to part from his young wife in the early days of their marriage, took her about with him wherever the Hussar regiment went, and his jealousy had become a standing joke among the Hussar officers. Rostov threw his cloak over his shoulders, shouted to Lavrushka to follow with the things, and now slipping in the mud, now splashing right through it, set off with Ilyin in the lessening rain and the darkness that was occasionally rent by distant lightning. Rostov, where are you? Here, what lightning, they called to one another. Okie dokie. Well done. Another chapter down. Rostov's back in his war setting where I think he's most comfortable in life. Um, head over to the subreddit, make a comment or two, and I will see you tomorrow.